in my experience, uh, mainly actually of watching Ed speak in church for a very, very long time. The weeks when he feels his most broken and prepared are often when uh, God uses him the most powerfully, so it's crossed. Um, I'm speaking from John 7 and 8 today. It's the famous passage about the woman who is caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. John is the only, only one of the gospel writers to include this story, but it's very well known. It's a beautiful story about forgiveness and uh, the triumph of mercy over judgment. In it, Jesus is commanded to make a judgment about whether this undeniably guilty woman should face punishment, just punishment. And in this battle cry for grace moment, Jesus sends the religious man and their desire to smash her to smithereens with the power of the law, with the power of right and wrong away with their tails between their legs. He beats them at their own game and he says to the woman, your accusers are gone and I do not condemn you. And he turns it around. He is love, he is grace. This is forgiveness. But then there's that niggling last line. Go, he says to her, and sin no more. You've got a second chance. Now, don't do it again. Sounds a bit like it's not free. Like he's saying, there's a cost. You must change your behaviour. You must take my pardon. And actually, it doesn't mean that. And I'm going to come back to this. But this story goes right to the core of how we understand grace. And if you're picture of Jesus, when you come to him for forgiveness, you come to him with your brokenness, is someone that says, yes, grace, forgiveness, but then something's really wrong. Because if we make the whole story about that last line, we're missing something. And I think this is a spectacular example of how we can take grace and make a rule out of it. Um, our youngest daughter is now four, and she's always been our wild one right from the start, um, and it currently shows no sign of abating. She undoubtedly has a very destructive streak. She really likes to see what happens when she knocks things over and bashes them and smashes them and testing them. Um, she currently loves very, very much to scribble um, she's also really, really into glam rock. She asked us to play uh, Queen's Greatest Numbers on a daily basis. And I don't know if these things are connected, but she <laughs> loves to scribble. She's scribbling all the time. She finds a pen or a pencil or a crayon or a $30 lipstick. And she scribbles her bad self happy. Um, and we watch her. And it doesn't actually look, when you observe her behaviour, this, by the way, is why youngest children get away with so much, because their parents finally have time to make any observations um, and deal with them objectively. But we watch her, and it's not intrinsically badness within her. You see, she's just, she's just expressing herself. But she does this all over the walls and the soft furnishings. And her favourite medium, a wooden door frame. She's trashing our stuff on a daily basis. And we like our stuff. So we talk to her, and we tell her how we feel about our stuff not being scribbled on and the doorframe not actually belonging to us. 
and we ask her to please not do it again. Have some paper. Please don't draw on anything other than paper, Margot. And she says sorry, and she says she won't do it again. But Lola hasn't got very good at deceit yet, because then quite often she'll go sorry, and then she'll go. <laughs> <laughs> and you can be doing something else entirely, but when, when Margot starts doing this, she must be walking through the room, you absolutely know she's about to go scribble on something that you really like. <laughs> and if we can manage not to laugh at this. It's, it's, it's when you look at it, that this is, where, this is where wrongness starts. There's innocence to it, but this is wrong. And sometimes it makes us angry, and sometimes we can calmly deal with it and give it a consequence. This is my best illustration of what is evoked in me when I remember this story. Jesus is gracious, merciful, and understanding of our brokenness. He will rescue us from the claws of righteous justice, but he needs us to repent and to acknowledge the ways we've let him down and then to do better to turn away from sin and never return to it. Repentance, I clearly remember being taught, is not just saying sorry, it is promising that you will never do it again. But actually this story is about something else entirely. Yes, it is about forgiveness, but it raises some very important truths about sin and how we see it, forgiveness and how we see it, and if you can even believe it, it has some very important themes about men and women and sexuality and power. Yes, I have made this about feminism too. <laughs> um, but let's, before any, anything else, let's read the passage. So it's John 7, 53, 8 to 11. Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this man was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? <clears throat> they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, which the writer clearly wants us to know. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin sin no more, as many translations put it. So questions. We've already raised the, the what does go and live your life sin uh, mean, and we'll come back to it. But I've got others. Firstly, and most obviously, how has this woman been caught in the act of adultery? Where was she silly enough to be doing the adulterizing in a way that meant there was actual witnesses to it? Secondly, where is the man? She was not having sex by herself. Why is he not there in the face of an impending doom? Does anyone think this is fair? What could Jesus possibly have written on the ground that would have such a remarkable effect? Why did the religious leaders walk away? So much drama. This is not really a story about <coughs> the scandal of a woman who has betrayed her husband, or more likely the fiance actually, with another man. It's not about her shame. 
This story is about the scandal of Jesus, Saviour, God, who defies expectation, defies protocol, defies our understanding of right and wrong, and calls out a despicable, misogynist, evil act for exactly what it was, and then lands with more grace, more love, more hope for a broken, messed up, unfair system. <clears throat> It's utterly ludicrous, and it never, ever, ever runs out. The scandal of grace just can't fix this. So let's start with some context with what they're all doing there. Um, it feels like it's, yeah, it is. That one. Do want to include my stand operation, my feminist. Thank you very much, darling. Thank you, it is, isn't it? Okay, so what are they all doing there? This is going there. I'm just kidding. Um, the Festival of the Tabernacles is the last of the seven major feasts on the Hebrew calendar. It comes right before winter when rains are due. The whole thing is about pleading with God for water. So the crops will flourish and the harvest will be plentiful and there'll be lots of food to eat so the people won't starve. It's simple survival stuff. Thousands of Jews would flock to Jerusalem for the feast and stay in tents to remind themselves about how God looked after them when they were in the wilderness. Each day there's a water ceremony. Lots of priests, water, ritual, all orientated around asking God to bring the rains this year. Water, water, water. It's a religious festival, but it's also a party. There will be one. This, by the way, gives us um, part of the answer to the first question, how did the gal get so caught in the act? She was camping, she was drunk. That makes no sense. And uh, just before our passage, on the final day of the feast, Jesus has stepped into full public view of the temple courts and made his most stunning pronouncement to date in chapter 7, verse 37. I think we've got that. I don't know. You're way ahead of me. Um, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Just like him uh, calling himself the new temple in John 2, which I spoke about a few weeks ago, this is the same deal. To the Jewish audience, he's saying, you're praying about water, I've got water. I'm the one your whole existence is framed around. I am the source of water, of life and spirit. It comes through me. Come to me. And it makes the Jewish leaders furious because they live by very important rules. He is not trained by a rabbi that they can verify. He's healing people on the Sabbath and showing mercy where he shouldn't be and flaunting their rules all over the shop. And so they lay the trap to end all traps, but they accidentally expose some awful stuff about themselves. Their trap had some massive flaws, which begs the question why they weren't more careful or clever. I think probably because they were just so desperate to destroy the grace. Because religion despises grace. Religion despises anyone having a free lunch when I've paid for mine. It despises anything operating outside of the system that I have worked so hard to thrive in. It says no, no skipping the line, no free pass. People who live by the rules and earn their love and their place and their status by following the loop the rules, by relying on themselves, by believing it's their own strength or gifting or hard work 
cannot stand grace. Healing and freedom and mercy come after payment and proper repentance. Do you know what I think is the most evil thing anyone has ever said to me is, of course you, of course you don't, but of course you want to know. Because um, words, words matter, don't they? Uh, but some are worse than others. Um, it was said to me after a very public, pretty catastrophic situation had come to light in which I had been involved and had had some responsibility for. And it allows me to relate to the woman standing before Jesus in uh, very close ways. I've spoken about it before, so I will not unload it on you again in detail. But after this had all pub publicly exploded in a Christian context, someone in a position of authority over me, who I respected a lot, uh, told me that the Lord was placing a yoke on my life, a heavy burden under which I would be living for probably several years until I had properly repented and paid the price. And I believed that for quite some time. And then fortunately I started going to a church that told me something very different was true. Because it's the actual opposite. The actual freaking opposite of what the gospel says. It's the opposite of grace. It's the opposite of what actually happened in my life with Jesus over the months and years that followed. I'll see your church pay and I'll raise you 20. <laughs> Religion hates grace. The Jewish leaders despise this message that Jesus was bringing because it makes no sense. So they make a plan. The idea was to get Jesus with this double-edged sword. Either he says, yes, uphold the law and stone her. Uh, this is what the law demands. But it would be in opposition to most of what he's already preached to the message that he's been uh, spreading throughout this time. It would very importantly be in opposition to common practice. Interestingly, it was not common to stone a woman for adultery at this time, and it would have been viewed as extremely harsh by everyone in the community. But most importantly, it would have been seen as an act of insurgence against the Roman prefect, who alone had the power to um, execute anyone. So by upholding the law of Moses, he'd be putting himself at great risk of arrest. On the other hand, let her go, and he's publicly renouncing the Jewish law in front of all of these people, which of course is the Son of God, which he's claiming to be, cannot do. It's all very clever, very tra trappy, very sneaky, or so they think. So Jesus writes in the dust, and no one knows for sure what he wrote. Many think he's making reference to the Jeremiah passage, um, and it's one that would have been repeated over and over again during the tabernacle festivities that they've just been doing. Um, and it says, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So maybe he wrote down Jeremiah 17, 13. Maybe he wrote their names. It's all conjecture. It's also pretty hard to read dust font in my experience. <laughs> maybe he was just making a prophetic act of writing while asking his father for wisdom and insight, what on earth to do. We don't know. But it says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, importantly, this is not a generic, come on, guys, you all screw up sometimes. He's referring them back to the law, to Deuteronomy, where it says that the witnesses of a crime who make the accusation must be the ones to throw a first stone. 
and crucially, the witnesses who had to actually have seen this happen and been sure that it was happening in detail, you think that through, the witnesses of this, this thing must be absolutely clear of all wrongdoing in the act. So he's saying, okay, if you witness this, it's your place to start the stoning, as long as you were no way complicit in it. Because it's also a sin that to allow a sin like this to happen and not intervene, to conspire to be a witness and to not prevent it, if that's in any way possible, that is also a sin. So Jesus is saying, if there was any element of your complicity in this, in her wrongdoing or her being caught, which of course he knew there was, you were not without sin. And then he bends down to write again, but he's made his point. You have tried to lay a trap. You have made a victim out of this girl. You have despised the mercy that I'm here to bring. And I am not a fool. And they leave beaten, angry, and conspiring some more. <clears throat> There's a plethora of sins in the law that these men could have conspired around, a huge range of charges they could have cooked up to lay the same trap. But it is interesting that they chose a sexual one. And it's interesting that of all the intolerances held by religious communities the world over, many are also sex-related, even to this day. Sex outside of marriage, masturbation, adultery, divorce, even abortion. And please hear me, I am not making any comment about the damage that some of these things cause. But I'm talking about the real space that religion takes up with its intolerance. It's mainly a sexual space. <coughs> and it's a bit interesting that the charges these men brought were sex related against a woman. It's interesting that there's no sign or mention of her lover, because the law actually demanded that he be stoned to death too. Um, in first century Judaism, sexual sins were always viewed as the woman's fault, as they were charged with having uh, the spiritual and moral fibre needed for sexual purity, which men obviously could not. Boys will be boys is obviously not a new idea. Um, the discussion of how the sexualisation of women has been linked to their oppression, regulation and control is slightly mind-blowing, but sadly it's, it's, it's not the time for that discourse today. Suffice to say, the power and abuse that are being addressed with Me Too and Time's Up, they might be recent movements, but in the vast majority of places, throughout the vast majority of time, the same things have been true. Women have had no power and no commodity except sex. So, so say the sociologists, anthropologists and historians, the punishment for flaunting this power, this thing, for taking any uh, power with this commodity, i.e. in this instance, for having sex with someone other than your husband, must be very, very high. We must make this a very, very, very serious consequence. It's the only way we can control. Sexual immorality was rife in the Roman Empire. It was everywhere. And Jewish culture and the early church took a very, very hard line on it. Um, it's included throughout uh, the apostles in lists with murder and apostasy. Um, for many early church writers, it was commanded unforgivable. Like, if you do this, even though we believe in the cross and forgiveness and all that wonderful stuff, if you do this thing, you'll be sent out of the church and you won't be allowed back in. We're talking permanent expulsion. Which is all well and good until you've accidentally got drunk in a tent and made a very, very big mistake. Oh, wait. 
Jesus did something else. No, we better leave this passage out. It actually doesn't work with our stance on women or sexual impurity. We cannot have this woman receiving grace and forgiveness in all of our Bibles if she's committed this sin. So do you know what happened to this passage? I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, John is the wild card gospel. It's not as trusted and authenticated as the synoptics. And this passage shows us a little bit of that. This entire account is actually absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts. The early church fathers chose to omit it, so their versions literally skip from chapter 7, verse 52 to 8, 12. And it's very likely that John didn't actually write this. It's got all the hallmarks of Luke's, apparently. But um, most commentators agree it was posted in later. Historical evidence does agree that this event took place, that it's authentic, exactly as described very likely on the seventh day of the Tabernacle Festival. But the early church fathers couldn't handle it. This grace is just a step too far. Jesus' refusal to condemn this adulterous woman was at absolute odds with the outlook of the day and many, many, many days since. So as many commentators believe it, this is not just your crazy feminist pastor speaking. We'll turn anything into a discourse on women. I win. I mean, I'll try. I'll give it a go. But this passage was deliberately removed. It's quite a thing, isn't it? But we have Jesus, who takes the law and owns the law, takes the trap and owns the trap. Here's the, yeah, but it's always been this way, and the, but who will raise the children if the women go to work? And look what women's liberation has done to the world and says something very, very different. Something so countercultural, so revolutionary, actual millennia before anyone had even heard of suffragettes or bras or contraception or hashtags. Jesus is the answer to all division, to all injustice. So just to finish, Everyone leaves apart from Jesus and the woman. He straightens up and asks her, woman, or actually mom, much more accurately, it's, it's respectful, it's kind. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin, or sin no more. It's one of just two times in his recorded ministry that Jesus says this sin no more. The other time is when he heals the paralysed guy, um, the one who's been an invalid for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. And um, he tells him to carry his mat, which enrages the synagogue leaders because he's done it on a Sabbath. Um, and then the guy comes back to Jesus and comes to find him and Jesus says, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. In both of these instances, the adulterous man and the healed man they are now in danger because of, the, because of meeting Jesus. They are personally at risk by the Jewish leaders. Their interaction with Jesus and his grace and his healing has put them directly in the line of fire. To both of them, I think he's saying something much more like, my love, beware, these men are missing it. They don't get forgiveness and they don't get grace and they don't get healing because you haven't earned it and they are despicably willing 
to use your brokenness and your pain as a pawn in their games because what I'm saying and what I'm doing offends them to their deepest core. Don't let them do that to you. Give them no weapon. Don't do this again. With the woman, think about the fate that awaited her. She might not be facing execution, but another dark reality would soon be dawning. Everyone would know what had happened. And I think Jesus meant, remember this. When you feel judged by everyone, when they command your shame, remember this. When you see the man that you slept with and you know that he faced nothing of the same humiliation, remember how this feels. Remember that I love you. Remember that I set you free. Remember the relief. Remember this when you see me die on the cross and hear of me rising again. Remember this grace, here for you. Here for the man you went to bed with. Here for the men who have just tried to have you executed. Because it's here for us and it's here for all the people, even the ones we find the most difficult to forgive. It's here for murderers on death row. It's here for drug addicts on skid row. It's here for power-hungry traffic officers and human traffickers and wife beaters and baby killers. It's here for Nicholas Cruz. It's here for all the elected officials funded by the NRA. To defend the rights of free access to automatic weapons over human life again and again and again. Sorry, this stuff really gets me. <clears throat> it's here for all of us and it makes no sense. <clears throat> Neither do I condemn you, he says. Jesus deals with justice. He takes the justice. He says, this is now between me and you. We're the only two here. And he says the same to us. You're the one sheep who's gone astray. He isn't thinking about the other 99. You're the widow with the one cent offering. You're the worker who's turned up late, didn't do any work, but still gets full pay. You're the son who's squandered it all and returns to be celebrated. <clears throat> Grace doesn't need to be right. Nobody wins with rightness. But grace, unchanging love, unrelenting blessing, regardless of anything. These things change everything. And it doesn't make sense. And I think we should sing another song.